so the challenge for all of us is to uh, take what's most valuable from our experience here with us when we leave so that we can uh, get the benefit, really, of our time, our efforts, our understanding, uh, and integrate it into our life. So it's a challenge, really, because a lot of what we experience here is community, the continuity of the practice, the frequent uh, uh, exhortation, instruction, uh, encouragement to practice, the ready answers for your questions most of the time, and uh, a, a, a good talk in the evening to kind of give you an overview and put your practice in the context of the bigger picture. Now, which of those can you take home and which of those can't you? We live in Maui, Annie lives here in Barrie, so we can't go with you. The schedule is uh, optional, but most of you have a busy life and you can't take the schedule with you. Most, some of you are here with your partner, good luck. The rest of you <laughs> are gonna have, to, gonna have to look for a community or a companion. Uh, so what is it that we can really take? There's one really important understanding. The depth of your understanding, the uh, arousing of faith and confidence that you have in yourself and the Dharma, and just the, the clarity with which you see is due to the continuity of your effort. So whatever you can do outside of here, to establish some continuity to reminding yourself to be aware, practice a Dharma, take a Dharma perspective on things, that is the best thing to do. So, first, sit every day. Something, sometime, a few minutes, twice a day, once a day, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever you can, whatever you can Manage, sit every day. Second, get a Dharma buddy, Dharma companion, or Dharma group of some sort that you make a commitment to practice with on a regular basis, whether it's once a week with a, a local Sangha or a Dharma check-in with a, a teacher or a community Dharma leader, but someone who can keep you honest that you have got to report to or, or, or speak with on a regular basis because then you've got to practice to have something to say. That's good. Uh, third is um, because so much of the Dharma and integrating the Dharma in our life is community. You know, if we just got these instructions and got the answers to the questions and the Dharma talks, but we were alone, we wouldn't do it. It's because of the group support and because of the uh, interaction and seeing others go through their own stuff too that really makes it a, uh, an individual effort for a community benefit. 
find a Dharma organization, nonprofit or otherwise, that you can serve, that you can volunteer for. If you live anywhere near here, you can always come out and volunteer for a day or weekend, whatever, or if you have one locally. That will get you connected to Dharma community on a non-intensive silent retreat basis, which is, well, helpful. Um, what number am I at? Fourth? Fifth? Fourth. Uh, fourth. Uh, look ahead at the schedule, and your schedule and the schedule of retreats and, and decide which one you're going to do next and make a commitment to do another retreat. If you have any interest or you've even had the thought, maybe it'd be nice to do a longer retreat, a month, six weeks, three-month retreat, or for some of you who've been practicing a little longer, maybe go to Burma and do a two-month, three-month. While right now, from this perspective, you have a lot of faith and a lot of interest and whatnot, once you get caught up in the busyness of your life, that will look more and more remote. But just because it looks remote doesn't mean that it isn't possible. Nurture your aspiration. If you have an idea, just nurture it. Just reaffirm to yourself, maybe, maybe when the time's right, it'd be a good thing to do. So that when conditions change in your life, between jobs, between relationships, win the lottery, whatever it is, then the decision is ready to be made and you can go and, and do it. But just nurture the aspiration. Um, there are a ton, there's just infinite amount of Dharma available online. Blogs and live chats and courses and practice. and There's just an infinite amount, which doesn't mean you got to do it all. On the contrary, I would be a little more selective and just really do a survey, if you haven't checked it out yet, do a survey of who you resonate with for teacher, teacher, teachers, who you resonate with and gravitate to them. Because if they speak to you, or if they speak to you in a way that you get, or you feel inspired by, or you feel encouraged by, or they're local, or whoever it is, they're the ones who are going to be most touching your heart and guide, and you're going to feel most confidence and faith in and follow their instructions. Uh, different teachers have different, mm, different levels of accessibility. Some are very accessible, some are less accessible, but you can always ask. Um, tonight I'm going to speak about the householders' practices of the paramis and their practices. And these are the things that you can do every day. Generosity, patience, truthfulness, living in harmony, equanimity, metta, loving kindness, understanding, etc., etc., these are things that you can do commuting to work, uh, in the house, uh, in your civic community. And they're really important to do because they provide the foundation in the mind for liberation to basically endure the, the uh, result of liberation. So uh, when I speak about them, you'll see how that works. And... Those seem like the important pieces, but yes.
So that's the kind of the nuts and bolts of it. But what we'd like to do is open the floor to questions, and we have about 40, 45 minutes for questions. If it can be about practice at home or how to take it home or what's, that, that'd be most useful. Yeah. And Uh, do you want to say anything? Mm-hmm. Do you want to say anything? <laughs> 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 yeah. Reel her in. Come on back. Uh, let me just say that there's a lot of interdenominational or ecumenical uh, overlap and, and communication between, I think, all the major religions and what we would call Buddhist practices. What we've done here are Buddhist practices. You do not have to be a Buddhist. You know, do you breathe? Yes. Good enough. That you, you, <laughs> you can practice. No problem. Uh, do you have a mind that wanders? Yes. You qualify. <laughs> to the extent that you integrate it with other traditional religious spiritual practices, some of them will be more uh, the practice of living in harmony. Some of them will be really more calming, you know, like mantras and chanting, and there'll be concentration practices or devotional practices like devotional or loving kindness. And some of them will be more reflective wisdom practices. So just understand where they, where they dovetail with dharma understanding and participate fully, no problem. You're probably the only person that has more than one. So take the easier one first. <laughs> and um, then if you can, you practice with that one when you feel enough momentum in the practice and uh, go on to the other one. And be sure to um, let yourself not go on to another one if it's too overwhelming for you. Practice first with the ones that are easy for you. But in a single sitting, can you do two different... Oh, definitely. You can do two different ones. Mm -hmm. Sometimes putting them together, like I did one time, you put them together, surrounded by the others, it it really helps to send all. For some people, it helps to send them all so that it's not so pinpointed towards one. You're your loving kindness can be more diffuse in a way and it, it doesn't bring up as much it might not bring up as much of the hindrances to metta mm-hmm. just a quick question that I thought about all week why did you call it the art of equanimity just, I, why do we because we were trying to be creative <laughs> 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 I, I, I just kind of, of all the things that, you 
yeah. which made me think a lot about what you were reflecting, what mm-hmm. you were implying. Mm-hmm. Well, as, also, as you can see, that when you did the practice, it was just a sort of a collage of things that we do and all around equanimity. And uh, sometimes a single person like... Uh, person like you or somebody else would get uh, one part of it, be really interested in, be really fully uh, able to open to, and then some others, another part. So we just present it all as kind of a collage of uh, equanimity. And then in one retreat, you may pick up one part very easily and another treat another part easily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back there, you look very ardent. <laughs> I've decided next year, at the end of next year, to take either the six-week or the three-month retreat here. I have, I've never done a retreat quite that long. Um, and so my question is, is uh, if you could say something about the value of a longer retreat and um, why I might want to do six. I'm leaning towards three months, actually. But you know, anything you could say that might help the decision of six weeks versus three months. I have the, the, um, practically, I can do either one. Since Annie teaches that, she may. Uh, So, you have the option of either doing six weeks or three months. Well, if it was me and being a greed type, I would go for the three months. (laughs) Especially if you have the time. Okay, (laughs) yeah. Also, for six months. Then you definitely need three months. <laughs> well, you know, it's really to appreciate the length of time you have. And uh, I know you fairly well. I mean, you've done a fair amount of practice. And given that, I think three months would be really valuable. Really, don't, you know, don't go for the lesser amount if you have the opportunity. It is an invaluable you know, experience. Okay. Uh, yes. Um, to Steve. Or? To sit once a day. So if we can only manage sitting once a day, um, I kind of meld. So the question is uh, during a daily sitting. Uh, how much vipassana to do, how much metta to do, whether to do, when to do, things like that. You know, it is it is really just up to you. And uh, any of any is good. Uh, if, for example, you're sitting in the morning when the mind is hopefully a little quiet and only planning the day, uh, you might do insight practice as a way of just seeing all that's coming up, seeing, letting go, seeing, letting go, seeing, letting go, seeing, letting go, seeing, letting go. Okay. If you're practicing at the end of the day and your head is already full of the day and it's just like, you know, you might do some walking practice first. And then if you do metta, it's a way of just kind of just not taking a second look, a third look at everything that came up during the day, but just kind of calming down, calming down, calming down, calming down, calming down. Do some metta first, and then take a look at what comes up. 
but just coming out of the stress thing. If you, if when you sit down, you realize you're really just in a steaming froth about something, yeah, do metta. You know, uh, if you feel particularly, uh, you know, and this is this is kind of doing a monitoring thing. Just see how how you're feeling, and then choosing what to do. You can do five minutes of metta and the rest loving kind. I mean, the rest insight, or you can do half and half. Uh, you can do some metta at the end of the sitting. Uh, it really is. It really is up to you. You know both practices. You've done the metta. You've done the equanimity. You've done the insight practice. Um, you can sit down and just decide. I'm going to do five, five, and thirty. Five minutes of metta. Five minutes of equanimity. Thirty minutes of insight. Or it could be any other combination. And then just just do that. Yeah. I wondered if you were saving the. Question for last. <laughs> you wonder if we were saving. And, and the well, uh, we're 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 so old, none of us can remember the question. You can you can ask. I have a different question now. But... <laughs> you don't remember either. Um, it was about uh, partners um, oh. as teachers right. and how it, if it helps, it's helpful. Sure. <laughs> well, Kamala over lunch said, I'm glad we put it off so that you could answer. <laughs> a guy asked the question, a guy should answer the question. But now. <laughs> Okay. Well, I'll give you my perspective. And as you know, as I, as I mentioned to somebody this morning, for every question that's answered in the hall, the three of us could offer our own answer. They'd all be different, and they'd all be right. So, at least I'm not going to be wrong. <laughs> uh, I think the... The glue of our relationship is that we share the Dharma. Is it necessary to have a partner that shares your own, the practice you're doing? It's not necessary because we know people that have different spiritual or different practice traditions. But for us, it is, uh, it is a very strong bond. The other thing, uh, we, we got together a little later in life after we'd been through a few iterations of relationships and so we kind of gotten some of that kind of worked out before we got together and I think that we each had a well I know we, we each had a very strong commitment to our own liberation before we ever met and so what we saw I think what we saw and felt in the other is a support for practice and a practice partner and a domestic partner. And um, in some ways, my wish for Kamala to be liberated, not just so that I get to live with a liberated person, but <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to be so easy, but nevertheless. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it, it, it's what I could most wish for her and for myself. And 
I try to remember that in our relationship. But, you know, uh, let's be honest. We're still householders, not fully enlightened. We still have attachments and aversions, and they come out sometimes. It is really helpful to have someone who understands when you know when you get into a butt a head to head a head butting situation to have somebody when they say when they recognize oh this is what's going on just say you know what it's not worth it to me this is not worth it, it the, the the amount of suffering that you feel i feel uh, being right or whatever it's just not worth it and one of us will get there pretty quick usually usually and that's a great relief because sometimes I'm more attached to my, you know, opinion, view, whatever, than Kamala. And she sees it and she says, okay, whatever. And it's not just, you know, I'm going to resent you for the next week or whatever. It's just like you re- somebody, one of us, sees the, the uh, well, that we're not being aware, that we're really stepping way off the path of practice. And just brings us both back, and it's like, oh yeah, right, okay. I may win the argument, but I'll be miserable for the next, you know. So that's helpful, and uh, we practice together. We practice alone. We, we of course, we teach together a lot. So um, that's that's both. Pardon. Sure. We, our, our domestic life, we practice a lot, you know, just being daily practice. But, you know, I'll go off for a month and practice and she'll go off for a month and practice. Sometimes we practice together at home, kind of a retreat schedule. It's just, uh, there's a variety of things. And uh, I, think, um, I think our love is both uh, metta love and domestic love, and fair amount of attachment, and romantic love, and it's the whole package, you know, in different proportions, you know, as we, you know, get more into practice and older and whatever, things adjust. But um, we're working on it. How'd I do? My ulterior motive in wanting him to answer the question is I really wanted to see what he would say. (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) Um, You get to buy a new tractor. (laughs) When the time comes. But I do want to talk about when you have a partner that doesn't practice in this way, that doesn't sit in this way, because, uh, or doesn't do even the same, you're not on the same path of practice. I think it's so important to recognize uh, in each other, whether you're doing the practice or not, that each one is trying their best to develop the paramis, or you you recognize the paramis in that person, the forces of goodness, which Steve will talk about tonight. Now, um, 
before Steve and I were married, I was married for 15 years to a very, very good man, the one who I talked about in my talk, you know, the father of, of that hormonal uh, teenager. She gives me, us permission to talk about her. Of course, we have to give her what do you, royalties <laughs> later. But <laughs> she always asks us, did you talk about me? You know. <laughs> so um, when, when I was married to him, he, I recognized the paramis, the good forces in his heart, even though he didn't sit with me. And, you know, till this day, it, I, I remember being here in this hall and doing retreats that he would take care of the children. They were growing up and um, he would do all kinds of things to support my practice. And in, before I would do my practice and I would sit, I would, I would watch myself in my mind bow to him. And, and uh, I just totally respected him and, and how he handled his life. And so I, I have a lot of friends who practice the Dharma, but they don't have partners who practice the Dharma. But they learn to recognize their goodness and, uh, and to see that maybe they're not practicing the bhavana part now, you know, the part of developing the mind. Uh, dana, sila, bhavana, that's the, the last part, which we are practicing here, developing the mind, opening the heart. But our partners practice uh, being good human beings, the dana, the generosity, the sila, non-harming. And that's really important to appreciate. So that's pretty good. Yeah, that, that, that's also a pretty high bar. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I might just add. Sometimes with partnerships, there can be quite a lot of difficulty. I have found that to be a tremendous gift that the difficulties I have had in my relationships really have woken me up. The heart has had to open. I've had to look at my own resentments and reactions and so have grown tremendously from those difficulties. So, you know, there's even the difficult is good. Yeah. And then we know how, need to know how to respond uh, appropriately in that particular situation. So just to add that little bit. I got to have the last word. <laughs> uh, you know, when it, it's really when you get to a certain place in practice where you you made a commitment, you're working on it, you understand the path ahead. There really is no obstacle to practice, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how painful it is, no matter how whatever. It's just, it's an opportunity to practice, to step up to this situation and view it as a practice situation and what is needed here to, to, uh, to learn from it. And so when you, when you have that basic understanding that everything in life is an opportunity to learn about yourself, then it doesn't matter. I mean, we like to have harmony, we like to have agreement, we like to have alignment, but it doesn't always happen. 
So use that, use every opportunity as a, a, an opportunity to grow rather than seeing it as an obstacle. This is a problem. I got to get rid of it. I got to, you know. on that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my question is, uh, any thoughts on sustaining the meta and equanimity practices? I tend to uh, keep them up for a while after retreat, while there's the glow, and then somehow the commitment drops off, and, and I'm not able to sustain it. Yeah, sustaining the meta and any of the Brahma-vihara practices at home. You know what really helps uh, people I hear, I get the feedback, is finding that uh, on Dharma Seed Tape Library, finding a, a, a metta guided and have it available. And every once in a while, you know, just put your earphones on or wherever you can be quiet and turn on that and just be guided. And it'll actually, if it's in a place where, like here, you were at and you felt... You could be here again, just kind of uh, harken back to that time. It really can help your heart remember what it was like to take that in and to be guided and then to respond from your heart. So uh, tuning into Dharma Seed Tape Library and connecting with that can really help. If you belong to a group, do you? Do you go to a group practice? Uh, well, if you don't, then then... Make one. You know, you, you can start one uh, where you can uh, every once in a while play a, a guided meditation that everybody follows along. That's a really big help to, to do that. And of course, uh, when there are meta retreats, there's a meta retreat here every year, I believe, um, with Michelle McDonald Smith or Michelle McDonald and others. And so that's a really good course to go to. It really deepens your practice of metta, and it helps it to roll along when you get home. So look into that. That one is right here in your area. It's about seven days, I think, if if not more. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
So, uh, well, well, there's there's a range. I mean, I've heard uh, people right here say that um, she reads uh, Dhamma stories to to her daughter every night, and that that's beautiful. And that might help for for your daughter, who sounds like you're doing something similar, and offering metta. Um, you know, doing metta with, with the young ones. When they're younger, it really helps. So when they get to the teenage years, they're normally, it's true, they're normally pretty full up with their peer groups and all of that. But what I've seen with my own children, they're now um, adults, that they, I, I never really sat down with them and, and exposed the Dhamma to them as the Dhamma. It was mostly like, this is how we are in life. You know, we pay attention to, are we hurting people? And what works? You know, what are the, what are the good thoughts and, and good ways of being that cause harmony? The whole thing about sila can be said in ways that you don't even have to say Buddha or Dharma or sila. Just modeling. There's a, an old story about somebody who went home from a retreat and uh, wrote back or gave the feedback to a teacher here that I went home and when I was a Buddhist, nobody liked me. But when I was a Buddha, then they liked me. Then it was better. you know. So just modeling how, how it is. For example, the, the ways I, we've kind of rehearsed how to do equanimity here, I say it out loud to in the, my grown children and I hear them saying it out loud to their children. So it passes on, and they don't even know that I'm... They would be surprised if they walked in here and saw me in front of this group. Their jaw would drop. They, they don't even know, have any idea that I do this. Um, <laughs> there was a, a cute cartoon that Steve sent to me from The New Yorker about some, someone climbing the mountain to look for the, the guru at the top to get some you know, advice of how to be a more spiritual person or how to be... He gets to the top and he's just peeking over and he goes, Mom, it's you! <laughs> <laughs> and they may not know that till, you know, but who cares if they know or not well, what, what I do? Um, so just just modeling, just modeling like that. And then when my son had, uh, was in the same situation that you're talking about with, when he was that age, and he was a football player, and um, you know, he was very good in sports. And he, one time he came to me and he said, Mom, I really need to understand how to calm my mind because when I'm on that football field, it really gets hard. And so when they've asked me, then I've offered when they get older. But we did nothing like sitting together and all of that. There's, there's been a lot of ways that I've handed down the Dharma without ever saying Dharma. But they did call me the Dhamma Mama. <laughs> Two things come to mind. One is uh, some of our students on the West Coast have started... Uh, teaching mindfulness in schools, have a program for teaching mindfulness in schools, and they are training, they go to schools and teach kids a, a program at any age, and they also train the teachers to teach mindfulness. 
And it's really taking off like wildfire around the country. And anyone who inquires, they, they'll, they'll make arrangements to send somebody there. So if you can't reach your kids with mindfulness, maybe someone in the school can. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, there's that option. And the other thing is, uh, when our daughter was, when Kamala's youngest daughter that I helped raise was 14, 15, 14 or 15, we knew that there was a teenager's retreat here. Teenagers without parents, not without their parents, but other adults, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Lots of adults, two two to one, one to two or whatever, but anyway, lots of adults. Uh, And so... We just asked her if she'd like to go. We said it'd be, you know, we thought she'd like it or benefit from it. And she was her usual, you know, teenage, anything mom wants, no way, you know. Da, da, da. But she decided to go. And she said the best thing she ever did in her life. You know, it was it was great. She got connected to kids her age. And they it's a very modified schedule. You know, they have a lot of discussion, short sittings, you know, and things. But really, really, really beneficial. Okay. One, two, three, yeah. So we we got a lot of practice doing lots of different things here, like sitting and walking and eating. And, but the one thing we don't get practice at is communicating with other people, like you know, speaking and listening to other people. Do you have any sort of advice or parameters or instructions around mindful communication? There's a course. There's somebody who actually does that. It is the first. Let's just acknowledge that communicating with is a is a huge area of our life, and uh, the more awareness we can bring to it, the better. Uh, in this setting, we just do not have the time uh, or the skill into kind of leading it. Uh, so we just leave you on your own to do the best you can. Gregory Kramer has uh, a whole has developed a whole mindful speaking uh, training program really helpful teaches all over I'm sure there's someone in New York that yeah sure Bart Bart uh, Bart Van Melek in New York City teaches uh, teaches uh, insight dialogue I think it's called it's really good BCB, he often comes to be. He comes to BCBS every year, once or twice. A Greg Kramer, and they do it also. They do also do it on online for remote for people around the world. Mm-hmm. They'll get the sangha from around the world and set up a program where they meet weekly, monthly, or something online, or skyping or, or online. Mm-hmm. So there's there's stuff available. Um, it's a vast topic. I mean, I could riddle off some ideas, but it's just it's not the practice. But as much as we put a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of inquiry and a lot of wisdom into watching our mind, it takes the same amount of interest, energy, effort, continuity to learn to speak and listen mindfully. So, good luck. Back there. Oh wait, I, I had given this oh, guy here okay, a nod. And then over here. So, yeah. yeah. This may be uh, somewhat a New York Boston question, where everybody's got one. Uh, in previous retreats, 
besides Christians and Jews, when the silence has been broken, I've always run into a bunch of psychotherapists. <laughs> <laughs> the tribe of which I am a member. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about uh, the influence both ways of, of the Dhamma on psychotherapy and of psychotherapy on practice. <laughs> Okay, there'll be a week-long seminar starting <laughs> now on the interface between Dhamma and Western psychology. Vast. There's just, I mean, as you know, it's just a vast uh, interface that is being developed, that, that has been developed and is being developed. Uh, couldn't even begin to scratch the surface of how extensive it is now uh, and the benefits both ways. <laughs> I'm pretty familiar with it, but I'm curious about your own perspective. N- n- uh, none of us are therapists, counselors, psychotherapists. Or, we have none of that training. Um, nothing more than, you know, sophomore level of um, introductory psychology. That's it. However, uh, there's a lot of seat-of-the-pants knowledge about psychology and... Um, We've all been in therapy, <laughs> a lot, uh, and it seems like mindfulness is an essential component to therapy. What is not helpful is to do psychotherapy on the cushion. Although I got to admit, a lot of people come here to retreats like this, and for many retreats, years even, they do psychotherapy on the cushion. It's not the most effective medium for doing psychotherapy, but they get through. And we're not the most skillful guides for doing the psychotherapeutic part of it. Um, It would be better to do mindfulness training here and then take it to the psychotherapeutic relationship to do it. Um, And I'm sure most of you have (laughs) lots of experience, as much experience as we do in trying to uh, merge, interface, uh, marry the two different traditions. But it's important to know that they are different. They are very different. And the goal of them is very different. So we really want, we don't want to kind of conflate the two, saying, oh, anything in Dharma is good for psychotherapy, anything in psychotherapy is good for Dharma. I wouldn't be able to uh, affirm that. Yeah. There was right here. almost finished production, a study of all of the programs all over the world for integrating mindfulness into education K through 12. So it should be completed, I would say, within the next several months. And there are programs that have been going on all over the world for as many as 16 years quite successfully. So, and also, available to anyone all over the world also. So for people that aren't connected here to other people, um, if they went on to the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, D.C., they might find a person to work with that would be willing to mentor with them. 
And that leads me to the question, is there going to be some kind of a contact list for people that have taken this program um, that might shed light on regionally where people are from that are here so that they can connect if they wish to? Um, and I guess anybody that might not want to be on that list, maybe make it known. Is that something that you do at the end of a retreat? Not generally. Uh, I think those kind of connections happen, you know, tomorrow when people start talking to each other. And if you, you know, want to put a notice on the board saying anybody from the Washington, D.C. area that would like to meet others in the Washington, D.C. area that are on this retreat, meet at this table in the dining room at such and such a time. Uh, we do not send out, we do not share your emails with each other. We don't, we don't share anything like that. Because, you know, it's, it's for each one of you to choose who and when and where. Uh, so we don't, uh, we don't facilitate that, and I don't think IMS facilitates that. The one thing that we are going to ask you, sometimes Kamala and I send out a notice about our retreats, and it's pretty rare, like once a year maybe, not even. Uh, so if you'd like to receive that, don't do anything. If you don't want to receive it, there will be a sheet of paper uh, put out uh, on the board, and I think John will mention it, that if you do not want to receive any announcements from Kamala and I, then sign that, and you'll be taking off, taken off the list of names that go onto our mailing list. Okay? Did you get that? If you don't want to receive announcements, just put your name down and they'll take it off. I just want to say something more. Um, I wish we could uh, do more like that to have people connected, but I just wanted to give you a picture of what goes on in the background here. It looks like we're all floating on a crowd, a cloud sometimes, but we are busy back to back. There's hardly time for us to lay down sometimes. The whole, you know, so that's how it goes in the back room there. And so there's so many details to take care of to keep a group like this together. That, um, yeah, for nine days. So that's that's what goes on in, in the back rooms here. And you do it without a computer, huh? Because you're not allowed to have computers here? Mm. We, are, we have computers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was one right here. In the corner, yeah. Yeah. No, there's no special code for the Dharma talks or the. Um, I don't know if the morning, what, what the morning. Everything's going to be online. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. And they're already on. It goes from here directly to Dharma Seed. Yeah. Right. Technology. Yeah. Uh, back here in the back. Yes. Can you tell me a website or a contact that you spoke about a program for teachers for mindfulness teacher training? Uh, mindfulness in schools, I think. If you if you um, Google mindfulness in schools, that the one that Steve was talking about is in um, California, Oakland. Oakland. Yeah, but where is the one you're talking about? Yeah. 
That would be really good. Yeah, yeah. Yes? In our talk earlier, you had asked me to ask in the group session about practice in Burma, and if you could speak a little bit about what day-to-day life is like and going in and practicing. Practicing in Burma, mm-hmm. day-to-day life. Um, I'm going to give Steve and Annie a chance to talk about that. So there's two places that are very available and useful for Westerners to practice in Burma, at least two. And one is Saito Utejaniya, who I've been practicing with in Burma for five or six years, and then uh, Saito Upandita's monastery that we've all practiced in uh, for some time. I'll let Annie speak about that. Um, Going to Burma is easier than it sounds. You get a ticket, you go. You know, there's there's websites that got all the information you need about going to practice there. Sadamafoundation.org Sadamafoundation.org Tells you everything you need to know. Take crisp, brand new, $100 U.S. bills. That's the only thing you can use for money in there. Uh, go between November and February. Other than that, it's too hot or too wet. Um, the food is... The is mostly good enough for a few months. Uh, if you were going to stay for a year or more, you'd have to do something else, but uh, good enough for a few months. Um, the practice is rigorous at Upanditas. It's relaxed at Saito-Tejaniyas. Um, their cool day is a hot day here. And um, what do you sleep? Dormitory? Pardon? Yeah, yeah, it's just like dormitory style. Mostly single rooms, sometimes doubles. Uh, take your own sitting paraphernalia, your sitting nest. They don't oft, often don't have a variety of things. What else they got? What else can you remember about? Yeah, that's the the first thing that comes to mind for me is that it's very noisy, whereas here you're in you know basically it's dead silent. There you've got in the one ear um, it's a hard day's night in Burmese blaring through a a microphone, and then the other ear you've got the Meta Sutta blaring through a microphone, uh, you know, throughout the whole monastery. So and that can be all day. Or it's maybe a little bit quiet during the day and then all night if there's a festival going on. So that's something that one needs to adjust to. If you need earplugs, of course, you take those with you. But you just learn to, you know, open to that. Uh, A lot of bugs sometimes. You need to be used to, you know, flying things. Uh, (laughs) A rigorous schedule, you know, maybe up at three Perhaps. There's a lot of routine at Upandita's yeah. place. It's total roti- routine. Right. You're practicing with a group from 3.30 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. No no individual, nothing. You're practicing with him or with, with everyone else. You walk in single file to the meals. You practice in the halls together, men on one meditation hall, women in the other. There's no, no special for anybody. 
if you think you can avoid just sitting, you have to go to the infirmary and get checked out by a doctor. And then, yeah. two, the in, the interviews. It's it's very different than having an interview with with one of us, mm. where you know there's no kind of friendly connection. <laughs> it's get right to it. What was the breath? How did it work? In out da 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 ding. The end. So you know you've got not looking to connect with a, a friend. It's yeah. The, uh, business with, with Upandita. It's not a personal personality relationship at all. Yeah. No. On Upan- the other hand, when you go to Saito yeah, Tejaniya, very different, very relaxed. Uh, people talk a lot, and there's no schedule. He says, no schedule, don't follow a schedule, just do your own thing. And, uh, you know, the meals are whatever, and, uh, you know, if, if you want to sit for five minutes, fine, sit for five. You want to sleep for four hours, sleep for four hours. You want to walk all day, right? walk all day. You want to walk fast, be sure to walk fast. He won't let you walk slow. And uh, interviews are kind of a group, Dharma discussion for two and three hours at a time. <laughs> Sounds like two ends of yeah. the spectrum, and and it is actually, but in a practice format way. But they're both pointing to the same thing: right, right. continuity of mindfulness yeah. and how to get there and the obstacles that you meet on the way. Upandita's is in silence and Utejaniya's is not. Mm-hmm. And is that, I know Upandita does a one retreat. He does the two-month retreat for foreigners every year, November, December. Uh, Saido Utejaniya's open, he's at his monastery in Rangoon most of the year, although he travels to the States and travels elsewhere. But certainly from mid-November to the end of February, end of March, he's, he's at his monastery in Rangoon. Incidentally, Utejaniya will be coming to IMS next year for a two-week retreat. It's his only teaching uh, in the West over the last several years. But he will be here for April 27th to May 11th. The registrations will open in September. There will be a lottery drawn around Christmas time. And there will be a lot of people that want to do that. But if you want to to do that, then by all means... uh, It'll be practicing, yeah, Utejaniya style mindfulness practice, yeah. And his here his translator Matet, who is just a delight, uh, will be coming with him. He speaks pretty good English now, but uh, she's she's promised to come for that. Aren't you teaching with him? What? Aren't you teaching with him? Yeah, uh, uh, Carol Wilson and I will be ass- assisting him. We'll let him teach, and we'll just assist. There's going to be one last question. Yeah, who, where? Well. Last question? Oh, no last question. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, just quickly, I was going to ask about um, practice in monastery settings as opposed to meditation centers in North America or Europe, and also about your Abhidhamma retreat, what the structure of that is. Uh, okay, practicing in monasteries in Asia is... Uh, pretty highly disciplined. You will be on eight precepts, and uh, it doesn't cost anything, or it's on a dana basis. Retreats in the West, as you know, are pretty loose by Asian standards um, and expensive, pretty much, pretty expensive. 
uh, our Abhidhamaraji, Kamla and I, along with Lamint, uh, a former Burmese monk, will be offering a seven-day Buddhist psychology course at Spirit Rock in October, October 9 to 17 or something like that, 16. And it's the one time we've we've offered it once last year, and this will be the last time we offer it for five years probably. It's just not something that we do. But it's going to be a retreat. It's going to be a silent meditation retreat with an afternoon from 2 to 5 of Abhidhamma material, basically. But silent around that period of time. Yeah. And we'll go over all the, the useful Abhidhamma material that supports this kind of practice. There's a lot of Abhidhamma that's very theoretical and uh, not confirmable by our own practice. We'll forget that. But the stuff that really will help practice here, then we'll do that. Okay. A couple things. Let me just let me just consult with my colleagues as to what we're doing next. So I just want to take this period of time, uh, 10 minutes or so, to speak about the practice of uh, generosity and dana. As you know, I spoke about generosity as uh, one of the paramis earlier in the retreat, the first evening, I think, of the retreat. And then we've mentioned it off and on. But uh, in relationship to dharma in the West and places like this, and teachers like us. Uh, you know, the, when the Buddha had his realization and taught others, when there were 60 fully enlightened monks, he then said to them, monks, go where you are invited to share the Dharma. If you're invited, you can go and share. But the requirements for monks' life is that they must be offered daily support of food, lodging, medicine, and clothing. And they can only stay where they are offered support. If they're not offered support, they can't, they can't work, they don't get paid, they, they can't make their own, and so they have to move on. And that tradition of sharing the Dharma to those who are interested and sincere, and not asking for and not receiving any payment for sharing the Dharma is a tradition that was established at the time of the Buddha and is carried on to this day. It was a transition when the teachings uh, left the monastery of Asia with Westerners and came, to the, came back to the States. And it was a real question and it was a discussion as to how are we going to do this? Because in Asian countries it's very well established that monks, in nuns, monasteries, meditation centers just get a tremendous amount of support. That's their lifestyle. And here in the West, we don't have that um, understanding. You know, we, we kind of have the conditioning, you get what you pay for. And if it's free, well, it's probably not worth that much. So, okay, what the senior or the first generation of Western teachers 
Jack, Joseph, Sharon, Christopher, Christina, Ruth Dennison, and a few others um, really decided was to to uh, create and rely on a hybrid model. Centers like this, or groups that sponsored retreats, would organize a retreat and would operate on Western financial principles of you got to pay your you got to pay your way, but that the teachers themselves would offer the teachings freely or on a dana basis. And it was a, just a brilliant stroke of marrying East and West traditions so that centers like this would operate on a, on a, a basis where they remained solvent and could continue to operate, but that the teachers would be invited to offer the Dharma not for pay, but for whatever students who were grateful or appreciative were able or willing to to offer. And that was just an extraordinary uh, development in uh, bringing the Dharma to the West. Because if it had all been a fee for Dharma, it just wouldn't be as available and you'd be getting the Dharma that could be sold. Uh, You wouldn't be getting the Dharma that nobody really wants to hear, but is necessary to. <laughs> so so I, I think it's a great, um, uh, what would you say? It's a great benefit to be able, as we do here, uh, to not have to charge a fee, not have to determine what's it worth and how much should we charge and what are you going to pay. And it's just uh, because then you start editing and start cutting corners and uh, saying what's palatable. And, and in this way, we, we don't have to. We, you, don't, you don't have to like us. You don't have to even like what we say. But if you're here, you're going to hear it anyway. And for the most part, people are kind and, and, and don't walk out of talks that they don't like. <laughs> but uh, the reality is we're, we're able to do this. We're able to come here and teach because we're supported by students like yourself from previous retreats who have heard, uh, appreciated, practiced, realized, felt gratitude, and wish to uh, support our being able to do this, continuing to do this. Uh, we, We hope you will understand that it is your practice of generosity. It's not a tip to us. It's not an exchange. We're not exchanging anything. We'll give you the Dharma free. Take it. It's yours. We're not asking for anything in return. But if you wish to practice generosity, if you wish to support our making the Dharma available, then we would gratefully receive whatever donations you wish to make. Jill, one of the uh, staff members here, will explain to you all the nuts and bolts of how to, where to, when to, and things like that. Uh, And then IMS will receive the donations and transfer them to us. Uh, Some people have said, oh, it must be really hard to live on dana, just the generosity of others. Um, and I know for many years, the first generation of teachers you know, that, that I mentioned, 
they lived out of their suitcases, uh, couch surfing for more than 10 years, really. I mean, it was just couch to couch, somewhere near where the next retreat was. And for many years, you know, Joseph lived upstairs in 101, Jack lived in 107, Sharon lived in 108, and it was just, this was their home. Uh, so they really have made a tremendous uh, sacrifice of their life to, to do this, uh, to establish IMS. And uh, they continue to, they now have their own homes, but they now continue to still teach on a, on a basis of receiving donations for support. Speaking for ourselves, when we receive gifts of material or financial gifts from you to support or in appreciation, gratitude for what you have received, we do not consider it pay, but rather we consider it your investment in making the Dharma available in the West. And we receive it that way and use the gifts that we receive to help support scholarship funds where we teach, support centers like this, support our teachers, support bringing teachers from Asia over here, support the publication of Dharma books for free distribution, the editing and translating of, translating and editing of other Dharma books. We support those activities which we feel will be really uh, supportive of the Sangha here in the West, having access to the Dharma, having access to Dharma teachers. So we, we take, we receive your gifts with uh, a sense of stewardship where we will accept and feel very responsible but joyfully responsible for distributing it, some to us, ourselves, to you know, pay our health insurance and car payments and the other things that other expenses that we have that are just like you and your household expenses, but also to share and to support Dharma activities, which we feel will be our um, authentic Dharma uh, offered with integrity that we feel have a broad uh, appeal and support for the whole Western Sangha. So we, we appreciate the gifts that we receive and uh, just want you, we want to be very transparent as clear, as transparent as we can be in how, how this whole thing happens, uh, how we get supported, how IMS gets supported, and just to see that, um, so that you really understand that it's your practice of generosity that makes it possible, and hopefully your practice of generosity will be a source of happiness for you. And Generosity is a practice, and it takes practice to see that it's a happiness practice. But it's possible. We, none of, none of us have... Uh, uh, we don't have a sugar Buddha. <laughs> yeah. None of us have sugar Buddha. There's no one making anonymous deposits to our checking accounts <laughs> monthly. Uh, IMS does not pay us anything other than our transportation to get here and back. Uh, nor Spirit Rock, nor any, any tradition in Asia or anything like that. No, no none of that. It's just really completely uh, uh, upon the students to support us. As you can see, 
We're not wearing rags. We're not falling away to nothing because we don't have food. We, we live okay. You know, and we're very grateful for that. Many of you have been to our retreats a lot, and we are extremely grateful for your support. It really is uh, a gift. It's humbling, and it's uh, it's just it's just a wonderful relationship that uh, we want to acknowledge uh, with you. Uh, it is a privilege. It is a privilege to share the Dharma with you and to be able to offer you the guidance and uh, instruction and what, what, what we can to help you really make the Dharma a part of your life. It's just an honor. It's a privilege. It's just, it's just extraordinary. And uh, we all think that we have uh, the best job in the world. Not that it's that easy, but we really... It's a, it's a calling. It's not a career. It's, it's a calling. And we're happy to be able to respond uh, to, your, to, to, to your needs. Now, if there's any questions that you have about the practice of dana and how we do and how it's done and why and anything, we want to answer them as clearly and as uh, comprehensively uh, to, to satisfy your questions. So do you have any questions about the practice of dana. Support. Yes, Kamala and I live on Maui. Both on Maui. Yes, and, uh, and Annie lives here in Barrie. Yes, Maui? we incorporated a nonprofit, and the nonprofit has purchased land and is in the process of creating a dharma sanctuary and hermitage. Not a retreat center, but a hermitage. And uh, we've, we've done a lot of infrastructure work. And currently we have a building permit application into the county for the permit to build our Buddha barn. And we'll see. When it's, when it's done, then we'll, we'll make other facilities uh, available for residential stay. If you want to support that project on an ongoing basis, is there a way to do that? Sure. Uh, if you want to support the Maui Dharma, uh, our, our thing on Maui, um, let's see. Email. Uh, email us. I'll put some business cards out and you can pick up a card and send me a thing. Uh, credit cards, PayPal, checks, cash, come work, <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah. Karmic seeds. Karmic seeds, yes. All, all the karmic accumulations you've got that are wholesome, send them over. <laughs> what? What is a hermitage? What's a hermitage? A hermitage. Ah, hermitage is for a hermit. <laughs> uh, our our vision is not to have a large meditation center, but to have individual cottages. Uh, on the land, we have 17 acres, uh, where they're pretty secluded, so each one can be secluded for a single person. So that when you have some maturity in your practice and you can, you're comfortable practicing on your own for a day or two at a time and don't need kind of constant uh, supervision, then it would be a place to really practice in uh, deep solitude. Uh, 
but within a community of others practicing in deep solitude with a small staff to provide meals and contact with the outside world. Long. So it's being hermits. Long term, not one. Yeah, longer term. It's not for anything. If you can do it at one week or two week or month long here, fine, do, do it here. But if you, if when your turn, when it's time for you to do six months, a year or two years, look us up. We don't have residential facilities yet. But when it's when you're ready, they will be. This is for Annie. Uh, do you teach um, anywhere besides uh, IMS and Forest Refuge? And if you do, is, is that schedule available anywhere? I do teach elsewhere, but there isn't a schedule available. So I could let you know. I'll be in Taos for a month next year in April. Uh, but other than that, I do shorter retreats here and there, usually weekends or three days and that sort of thing. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not like Stephen Kamala. It's not kind of, you know, that full. <laughs> okay, thanks. Any other questions about uh, support, Dana, how to... I mean, Joe will take care of that, but anything else? Thank you very much for your attention and for uh, your consideration of uh, support for us. And let, let me just say in advance for those of you who make uh, gifts uh, or pledges of gifts to us uh, uh, for this retreat, thank you. thank you very much. It is really uh, very, very much appreciated. Um, we're going to take a break, and then Jill, uh, one of the IMS staff, will come in and speak about the how-to nuts and bolts of Donna. And John, the manager, will come in and offer some um, end-of-retreat ride coordinating and things like that. So we're going to take, it's a quarter of four. As you leave for this break, it's just a no more than 15-minute break, huh? if, if you need to go to the toilet. If you don't, just, just stay here. Uh, we've had some books printed of Saida Utejaniya's uh, book of instructions. It's called Don't Look Down on the Defilements, They Will Laugh at You. <laughs> and, and even though it's a very little book, little in size, very few pages, and we're offering it to you freely, it is tremendously valuable. It has exquisite instructions of how to practice in your daily life. I know some of you already have a copy of Don't Look Down on the Defilements, and for you, we have a copy of his second book, Awareness Alone is Not Enough, which is a transcription, a, a collated transcription collection of conversations he had with us and other mostly sen senior students and teachers when we brought him here to IMS in uh, the West in 07 and 08. So it's really it's about the wisdom aspect of, of practice, where the defilement book is about the instructional aspect of practice. Some of you are here with a partner, a domestic partner. See that you get one of each. You know, that one of you picks up the defilement book and the other one picks up the awareness book. For those of you who are here alone, uh, awareness book, or the defilement book, or if you already have it, then the awareness book. So, uh, please. Come here and we'll offer you some Dharma. Dharma, Dharma Dana.
Oh, and by the way, the Buddha said, uh, the Dharma is the, the highest gift of giving when you are able to offer the Dharma, both in the form of instruction or books, but also the quality of your life.
Hello, everybody. My name is Jill, and I think you've already been introduced to me as the retreat support person. So this afternoon, I've been invited to talk about a different kind of retreat support, and I'm going to be talking, about giving the official IMS Dana talk. I think by now all of you are very familiar with the word dana and what this means. I know that you've been appreciating the free coffee that's been appearing in the tea station area and all the other kinds of special foods and treats that people have been leaving. So as you probably know, dana is the Pali word for generosity. And generosity gets... uh, demonstrated, manifested, and shared here in so many different ways. You know, simply showing up on retreat is a huge act of generosity to yourself and to others. Doing your yogi jobs every day for up to an hour is also a huge uh, act of generosity that has really clear practical and financial benefits to the center. If you can imagine... 98, 99 people here each doing an hour's work a day. If we had to pay somebody, an extra staff person to do that, that would significantly increase our salaries and salaries bills, and we'd have to increase our fees to cover that. So offering your service in the form of yogi jobs is uh, deeply appreciated. And as I said, just coming here is an act of generosity. Many people came from many different states around the U.S., uh, 18, yes, 18 different states and three different overseas countries, including the U.S., uh, four including the U.S. So we have USA, Canada, Nether Antilles, and the Netherlands. So some people came from far away just to be here. So this culture of dana that we are cultivating here extends in ways seen and unseen and I wanted to just share one of my own personal experiences of having received generosity from IMS. I'm from Britain and New Zealand originally and about eight years ago I was living in Australia managing a really small meditation center and I'd been on stipend for three years. I didn't have any savings. I was living a pretty minimal lifestyle And I had this inspiration that I'd love to do a three-month retreat here. But at the time, it just seemed way out of my financial possibility because this is a long time ago now. The Australian dollar was not worth very much against the U.S. dollar. Now, of course, it's flipped. But back then, it was an issue, and the airfare was expensive, and the cost of the course seemed really expensive to me. But I mentioned it to a friend, and they started to put the word out. And people who knew the center started mailing me checks, which was really quite an interesting (coughs) practice to be receiving money from people to do the retreat here. Even our center was associated with a lot of um, Burmese people, and Burmese people who I'd never even met would send me money, Burmese refugees. Somebody from New Zealand who I'd never met wrote me and said, I did the three-month retreat at IMS 12 years ago, and I want you to have that experience. So it was a powerful practice to receive that money and be supported to come here. And IMS also joined the party and gave me an extremely generous scholarship. So 
all of that to say, I was able to come here and sit the three-month retreat and two years later come back and be on staff. So the whole course of my life changed because of extended generosity from friends, from yogis, from strangers even. Um, and that's the kind of dana that we're cultivating here today that you're all participating in. So as you know, um, since the time of the Buddha, the teachings have spread throughout Asia and now the West. And you have to bear with me because I don't do this very often, so I will need to refer to my notes. When the teachers, the Western teachers of this lineage first started offering the Dharma here over 30 years ago, they made some choices about which of these different cultural traditions they would keep from Asia and which they would uh, let go of what was deeply important to sustain and preserve. And they decided that dana was, um, they would make the agreement to particularly nurture this quality of dana. And they made a collective agreement, and this is really significant, that they would offer the teachings freely. So I know that Steve talked to you a little bit about that already, probably. So rather than IMS paying the teachers to be here, the teachers are supported directly by donations, often mostly from yogis at the end of retreats. So IMS does provide uh, travel costs. We provide the teachers with meals and housing while they're here, but that's it. They don't get any salary or payment or honorarium from IMS for their teachings. And that's true of IMS and of our uh, sister centers like Spirit Rock in California, Gaia House in England, Beatenburg in Switzerland, and many of the urban insight centers that are developing around the U.S. and elsewhere. And it set a tone for the flowering of generosity of heart and mind. And you can see that not just with the teachings, but in centers like the Forest Refuge, our uh, long-term retreat facility up the hill that was built almost entirely from donations, and the renovations. If you've been coming here for a while, you will have seen in the last few years quite a few changes. Renovation of this hall, of the lower walking room, of the dining room. We're working always to improve the environment here to support your practice. So generosity, I'm hoping you're getting a sense that generosity plays a central role in the unfolding of our vision And it's a big vision. Um, Basically, we want liberation for all beings. So generosity is is contributing to that. And on a practical level, we want to support our teachers' commitment to freely offer the teachings. And we also want to dissolve financial barriers to practice so people like me, who maybe would find it a struggle those years ago to come here, can be offered scholarships to to practice at IMS. So I just touched in briefly to the three major areas of support that can be of tremendous benefit. So of those three, the first one is the support for the teachers. And you may have got a sense from Steve that just how much courage it takes to make a commitment to live with no defined income, not knowing from month to month how much how many financial resources you're going to have, and to trust that personal and family needs will be met while living a lay life in the contemporary Western society. It takes great strength of character, tremendous faith and trust to live such a life. So we've all been 
privilege to receive teachings this week from people who've taken that step. And I also want to add that any financial contribution you make towards the teachers doesn't just support their days teaching this particular retreat. It has to go through their time when they're not here. It also allows them to do their own practice from time to time so that they can keep uh, enriching and deepening their own practice and also their teachings. It also often is shared uh, with the teachers' connections in countries like Burma and Tibet. Many of our teachers are offering, supporting all kinds of uh, community projects for monks and nuns and orphans and doing uh, social offering social uh, support in uh, challenged sanghas, places like Cuba where there's very little development of the Dharma and not much money, or in countries where there's a lot of conflict like the Middle East. So the teachers are not just receiving the money for themselves, often it's flowing out into other areas too. So this creates a kind of a giant mandala of interconnectedness. You offer something here today at IMS and you don't know where it might flow to a nunnery taking care of orphans in Burma or a project in Tibet or Cuba. So that's the first area of uh, dana. The second is uh, support for what we call IMS's core operations. And you might not know this, but the, um, the course fees that we charge on average spread over the whole year cover only about a half of what it actually costs for you to be here. So those expenses include things like paying the staff modest but fair wages, covering the heating and utilities bills, insurance, food, teacher travel, you know, all the similar things that you as householders also have to pay for, we also pay for on a pretty big scale. So the rest of the funds we need to cover, the other half of the expenses comes from donations, where that, thanks to the generosity of some yogis, we're very fortunate to have an endowment that earns interest sometimes in good times, and we use some of that interest towards our expenses. The other source is from current donations offered by people like yourselves at the end of retreats, or from our annual appeal, or for retreat fees, when you pay above the base rate, that goes to core operations. And for meal dana, you've seen the board full of beautiful dedications from people for meals. So thank you for all the people who offered that. And then the third area that I wanted to talk about is financial assistance. And as you probably realize, that's pretty dear to my heart because I benefited from it. All of this is, but IMS really is committed to not having finances be a barrier to people coming here on retreat. We really don't want to turn people away due to lack of funds. So we offer more than a third of the people who come here some form of financial assistance. And obviously, the more dana we can um, generate for that, the more we can offer, and the more we can make this available to as wide a range of people as possible. At the moment, we also have a fourth area of um, development, which is pretty exciting. We're going, we're in the planning and development stages of a new construction project to build new single rooms so that everybody can have their own rooms. So for the people who had a double room for this retreat, that's also an act of generosity. Your willingness to share a room means that people who otherwise may have been turned away 
can come to this retreat. But we uh, often get feedback that having a single room is really supportive of people's practice. So we are trying to um, build a new dormitory with 28 simple single rooms and at the same time to renovate the Catskills. So for those of you who know the Catskills, the dorm closest to the dining room, long overdue, it's going to get new flooring, new ceiling, new wall surfaces. The bathrooms are going to be completely rebuilt. So the goal for that project is $2.35 million. And we're already well over halfway there in just over a year. So given the current economic climate, that seems like a pretty powerful uh, statement of people's generosity. So tomorrow there'll be more information on that project in the dining room. There'll be architectural plans, pictures. There'll be staff on hand. If you're interested in that at all, you can stay and have a chat to the staff people who know all the details of that. And it will be wonderful if you could support this endeavor. But we do want to stress that if your funds are limited, we please support our teachers, the core operations, and the financial aid as your first priority, because IMS depends on these for its day-to-day running of operations. And if you'd like to talk further about any of this, you can speak with our executive director, Bob Agolia, or our development director, Giano Gibson, who's away but she'll be back towards the end of August. So, practicalities. Uh, we try to make this as simple as possible. Out in the foyer there, you probably already saw there's a box, Dana box, and there are two kinds of envelopes. There's a blue envelope and the purple or lilac envelope. The lilac purple envelope is specifically for the building project that I just mentioned, the new dormitories, and the blue envelope is uh, for the other three areas of support, teachers, core support, and financial support. All donations to IMS are tax deductible. It's not possible for you to offer a donation to IMS for a single teacher and have it be tax deductible. When you offer teacher dana, it goes to the whole teaching team and they divide it amongst themselves. You can offer a donation with cash, check, or credit card, um, Visa or MasterCard. And if you want to continue helping IMS's core operations, we have a monthly giving program called Sustaining the Sangha, and that will automatically withdraw funds from your bank account each month. And there's information about how to do that on here. And similarly, if you have interest in including IMS in your estate plans, there's a check box you can check, and you'll get more information about that. So to make a donation, you just fill out the form. It should be pretty straightforward. Put your check or cash in there. Put it in the box. So thank you again for your practice and all the ways that you help IMS. Um, I'd like to close with a quote from Joseph Goldstein, who's one of the founding teachers of the center. And In his book, One Dharma, he says, Generosity is intimately connected with a feeling of loving kindness. In a wonderful kind of reciprocity, we are inspired to give because of loving feeling. And in the act of giving, we feel more love. Generosity becomes stronger and more delightful the more we engage in it. So any simple questions? Easy ones. Yes. 
uh, offering Dana, and uh, we might want to give some to the center, but also some to the teachers. We have two separate envelopes. No, it's all laid out with little colored boxes, three different types of Dana. So you can have one check or one credit card payment, and you just divide it as you see fit. Maybe there's, do you have the blue envelope? Yes, the blue form too. That looks like purple from here, but anyway, you can check in with me afterwards and hopefully we can straighten that out. Thank you. Any other? Yes. Uh, do you mean if you're just making a credit card payment? If you're doing a Sangha program, I, that is my understanding of how to do it. Um, for credit cards, yes, there is. They take a commission of a certain percentage. So um, it says here, you can either do it by credit card or you can enclose a voided check. So, yeah, you're probably right that f from our perspective, the check would be the, the less costly option. Thank you. Yeah. You can go online. That's a good question for overseas transfers. I'm not sure how it would work. But if you maybe check online as a credit card, if you're talking about just doing a one-off donation, that will be simple. Monthly, I will probably, if you don't mind seeing me afterwards, and I'll put you in contact with the people in communications and development because they have all the nitty-gritty details of that kind of thing. The overseas transactions is out of my scope. But thank you for the question. I'll stay here for a few minutes when we're done. Anybody else? Okay, well, thank you again. It's been a delight practicing with you and hope to see you all again here very soon. Now it's John's turn. <coughs>
So the retreat isn't over yet, and um, I do have a few things to tell you about to make the rest of it go a little bit smoother and simpler. Um, I want to encourage you to, to maintain your practice because there's still some valuable time left. And if you heard Steve talking the other night about Ananda practice, you never know when it's going to come. So, so let's keep practicing. Uh, I want to thank you on behalf of all the staff and myself um, for your practice. It's, it's really wonderful to have yogis in the house, and there's been close to 100 extra people here for the last week or so. And believe it or not, after you go home tomorrow, the, the center will be noisier. So it's, it's really an amazing thing. Uh, the retreat's going to end officially around 10.30 tomorrow morning. And um, you've been able to see the schedule all day, so you, you'll kind of have an idea probably already how that's going to go. Uh, the housekeeping departments um, asked me to read a few things about what, what you could do to help them. Um, they really appreciate the support you've offered with your yogi jobs and with just, um, they said that the center looks like it's in really nice shape. Um, they would like it if everybody can take the time to, to work on cleaning up their room tomorrow. There's a time slot on the uh, schedule at 8.15. And, um, or if you don't have a, a yogi job at 7.30, you could always start early, that's fine. Um, there's cleaning directions posted in each room and there's cleaning supplies in closets on each floor. Uh, frequently people will, will start to worry, geez, there's only one closet in a lot of rooms, but I've been through it many times. I think you'll find that there, there's enough to go around. You can also borrow the supplies that are in the bathroom on your floor. And please, as soon as you finish using anything, just bring it back to where you found it, and that way the next yogi can, can start using it. Um, Please uh, bring any pillow protectors and sheets that you may have borrowed from us or towels that you may have borrowed from us and any clothes that you may be wanting to donate down to the, the laundry room in the basement of the annex. Um, there's going to be bins there that will be marked. Um, I think they're just marked linens, but you could put all that stuff in the same bins. Uh, please do leave the mattress covers on the bed, however. Um, while you're down there in the basement, you'll find that there'll be stacks of new pillow protectors, so please grab a, a new pillow protector, bring it back to your room, and just leave it folded up on top of the pillow. If it's folded up, the next yogi will realize it hasn't been used, but sometimes people want to be generous and throw it on there for them. That'll just confuse us. Um, please don't bring the blankets to the laundry room either. They, they'll stay in the room. Um, if you borrowed extra pillows or extra blankets that weren't already in your room, please bring them back to where you borrowed them from. Um, they make a note, especially the thin pillows, so I don't know, maybe we're running short on those. Uh, they're asking to please leave your Venetian blinds closed so that they're dark and about halfway, halfway point, and to leave your windows open um, an inch or two so that there'll be ventilation, but so that it won't pour into the room if it happens to rain before the next retreat. Um, if you have garbage, there's garbage cans, and there's also recycling bins on each floor. So if you have something recyclable, please do go ahead and put it in the, uh, the blue bin so that we'll, we can hopefully minimize the impact. Um, please remember to move any food you may have from the refrigerator and from the shelves out in the, the yogi area there. Um, even if you have some nice food that you don't want to bring home, we, we won't use it as done. Somebody will just have to throw it away. Uh, so please do that. And if you have um, mugs or other things like that that you've labeled with your initials or something, please don't forget to take uh, the tape off and put them back into the, the dishwashing area. 
Um, if you still have the instruction sheets that you got for your yogi job, there's a, a bin just outside the meditation hall. It's um, kind of on the side of the bench there, and that would be great if you could put those back there so they don't have to make new ones. Um, there's a lost and found down in the laundry area. We should probably mention that at the same time as the laundry. But um, even if you think you probably didn't lose anything, it might be worth just checking there. Uh, a lot of times people go home and they realize they did lose something. So, um, And that goes for a lot of things. Like when you're leaving the hall tomorrow, please make sure you have any cushions or blankets, shawls that you may have bought. Also, the, the coat room especially is a place where things end up turning up. So we want you to, to go home with everything you came with. Um, when we do close the retreat tomorrow at the end of the, the period with, with the teachers, um, we'd like it if you could please bring the zabatons, which are the, the square or rectangular mats, up to the stage and just assemble four piles of them. There'll be somebody that's going to, hopefully some volunteers will be, will be vacuuming them later, and that makes it easy for them. And then the other supplies like benches, blankets, um, zafus, all those back to the, to the cubby in the corner there. Um, they're they're going to try to start the cleaning of the holiday weapons, so um, they they'll probably be closing the session around 10:30, and a lot of times that you know silence will be broken then. So if um, if you get in a great conversation, you might just gradually move it out to the uh, to the other area where there'll be lots of other people talking as well. And they're also asking for you to at least move your stuff out of your room by noon. Um, you don't have to leave or anything, but just if you can clear the rooms because they do have. Um, a handful of people that will be coming through and checking the rooms to make sure they're in shape for the next retreat. So are there any uh, questions about the housekeeping aspects of, uh, of tomorrow? Okay, and so I'll continue with the, what the office would like you to know about. Um, one thing we ask is that if you have a, a yogi job in the kitchen like salad making or pot washing and you're leaving before you can finish your normally scheduled job, please let the kitchen know uh, so they can try to, to find someone to replace you. And I know um, there's a few slips up there now, so if you have some, some free time tomorrow, it would be great if people could, uh, could cover some of the jobs that other people aren't able to. Um, after uh, we close in this hall uh, tomorrow, there's going to be books for purchase in the welcome room, which is the room where you probably checked in on opening night. Um, so there's a lot of books, and there's also free materials in there. Uh, the books are done by a self-service, so you can use cash, check, or charge card. And there's some forms in there. You just fill one out and leave the money in an envelope, and there'll be a basket for the envelopes in there. We're going to have some retreat evaluation forms out in the dining room, so we'd appreciate it if you could uh, go through that and, and just let us know your thoughts on your retreat experience, and that's helpful. Um, also, there's a new thing. We have a, a diversity questionnaire, so they're looking to get information about who comes here, and if you like, it's an anonymous survey. Um, that'll be out there as well. Um, they especially would like to know if you happen to use the rise, ride board to, to come to the retreat or to offer a ride, um, what your thoughts were on that, how it worked out for you. And we'd like to remind people when next time you're coming, um, if you're able to either post a ride that you can offer or find a ride through that, it kind of cuts down on our carbon footprint and uh, saves you all money as well. And, and you get to have a nice little mini retreat on the way up and on the way back. So um, Kamala and Steve run a center on Maui that's called Vipassana Metta Foundation. 
and they'd like to add everybody's name and address and email to their mailing list, um, but we want to make sure that's okay with you. So IMS has information on everybody, um, and what we'll do unless you tell us otherwise is, is give that all to them. If you don't want us to do that, I've put up a sheet on the bulletin board, or it may be on the shelf by the bulletin board, and you can, if you just write your name on that, um, please print it so I can make sure I get the right person. So that's if you don't want us to share your information, and then I'll make sure that that doesn't go to them. Um, everybody's invited to stay for lunch tomorrow, which will be at noon, and there was a checklist at the beginning of the retreat, so if, if you didn't check off that you wanted to stay, but you've decided you would like to, it's fine. The kitchen will make some extra food, so don't worry about that. And vice versa, if you said you were going to stay and you're not, it's no problem. Um, if you bought anything from the Yogi Needs Closet while you were here and you haven't paid for it yet, just please, whenever it's a good time for you, come into the office. There's a, a gray box on the, on the counter in the office, and you can just pay for it and make your own change. And um, I wouldn't think we'd have to announce this, but there was an orientation packet in each room, and we'd like you to please leave that uh, for the next Yogi when you leave. For whatever reason, they sometimes disappear. Um, I would think probably everybody's read them a few times by now, but <laughs> anyway, uh, <clears throat> tomorrow I'm going to be posting information on how to access the Dharma Talks on um, the bulletin board. So uh, there's an organization called Dharma Seed. They're separate from us, and they're a nonprofit as well, and they basically upload the recordings that we make here to their site and make them available for download. Um, so you, you probably need a code to do that, and I'll have that code posted, although some teachers make it so they're available for everyone. In that case, a code isn't needed, but it's probably better to take the code with you just to be safe. Um, and they, uh, they offer not only the, the talks from this retreat, um, but talks from many other retreats that teachers have allowed to, to be presented, so it's a great resource. Uh, there's no charge for that, but they do accept donations. And if, um, if you're not able to download, there is um, a feasibility of having somebody produce, say, a CD copy for you. They do that at a charge as their own side thing. Uh, so there's information about how to, how to contact them. We have um, work and volunteer opportunities from time to time here at IMS. And um, I'll make my pitch for volunteering. Uh, I came to IMS via volunteering. I sat a few retreats, and I, I heard about volunteering, and I signed up. And... When I started coming here to do that, I really just fell in love with this place, and um, and I left a lucrative career in a different field to to come to come here as soon as they were able to take me. It took a year to get a job from when I first tried, but um, but it's been well worth it, and and I love it. So um, there's various types of volunteering that happens. There's some of it has to do with working in the gardens. Uh, some of it is we we can use a lot of help on opening nights. You may have gotten a tour from someone that would probably have been a volunteer and the people that greeted you at the door. So if you're interested in that, there's information on our website. Um, it's under working here and you'll see volunteering at IMS and you, it'll have the contact information if, if you'd like to pursue something like, something like that. We also have a job open currently. It's a 30 hour a work, uh, 30 hour a week job um, and the title is office assistant in, in accounting. Uh, so they're looking for a person to do that, and there's going to be a job description posted tomorrow if you're interested. Um, and, and I think that's about all I had to go over with you as far as nuts and bolts go. The last item will be the ride-sharing uh, period, but does anyone have any questions before we get to that?
Yes. I just have a comment on uh, behalf of the people who clean the bathrooms and showers and floors for if you want to just to um, be mindful to let them use the basic G or whatever, let them finish their work in peace before oh. you start cleaning your own rooms with your yeah, that's a good point because I, I suggested you could start cleaning your rooms if you don't have a job at 7.30, but please don't forget that the bathroom cleaners will need the supplies, so maybe just use the stuff in the, the cleaning closets. Thank you. Um, anything else? Yes? Okay, um, it's supposed to... I, I, it's around the first week of September. We'll, we'll be posting next year's schedule. Uh, if you're on our mailing list to get postal copies, you'll get um, the IMS newsletter in the mail. Um, if you're on our mailing list to get email updates, you should get an email with a link so that you can actually read it online. And you can also check our website directly and to see the schedule. And I, It sticks in my head September 9th, but I'm not positive. But it's very early September we're going to have next year's schedule posted. Yes? Well, <clears throat> it depends. There was questions that you probably answered. Did you do it online? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so there were questions, and it depends on how you answered them. Um, if you're not sure, you can always go to our website and, and just do a mailing list. Um, you can add yourself to the mailing list, and that will ensure it. Um, yeah. Okay, well, so now's the, uh, the fun part, and this can go very smoothly sometime. Oh, was there another? Oh, okay, sorry. Um, it can go very smoothly sometimes and sometimes not so much, but I'll try to, to guide it in a smooth direction. Um, so uh, many of you may have come here uh, in, a, in a fairly empty car, and some people have come here without a ride back. So the way I like to do it is um, look at first the furthest away people who need rides and then go to closer and closer people. Uh, sometimes if you can't get a ride to your, to your final destination, you might get one to a city that's... that's um, where you can at least get a bus or a train to that place. So I'll start by asking if there's anybody that needs a ride someplace further than New York City area. I'll take her to the Netherlands, Antioch. <laughs> 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 I wanted to ask if there were jets available as well. <laughs> yes. To New York. Okay. Well, anybody, there's nobody further than New York? Okay, great. So we'll start with New York City. Are there people that need a ride to New York City? We've got quite a handful. And are there people that are able to offer rides to New York City? Okay, so I see a couple. I see three, three or four, possibly five even. So um, I think the numbers may work out. And the way um, I try to do this, if, if hopefully this will work for everybody, is I'm going to say the New York people go to the corner on my left or your right in the back when we, when we break up. And um, all the people that need rides and can offer rides, and you can kind of figure out amongst yourself as... You know, as simply as possible, don't try to get into a big um, discussion at, at this point, I would say. But, but if you could figure out who can take who, who's going near each other, that's a, a great way to, to make this all work. Um, so the New Yorkers to this corner of the room. Um, now, are there... Yes? Oh, um... Yeah, I'm not sure either, but um, is there anybody that's actually headed in that direction, in, towards Maine? Yes, but not so early in the week. I don't know. Oh, not tomorrow? No. Uh, uh, anybody else? Uh, yes? Did you say Portland, Maine? Portland, Maine. 
Okay, so um, so. Okay, so maybe you two can um, meet, say, in this corner of the room after and just exchange what details you need so that you can finish the job tomorrow. Um, the, next, uh, the next one we usually do is Boston area. Are there people who need a ride to the Boston area? Yeah, uh, okay, a couple of people needing rides to the Boston area. Now, are there people that can offer rides to the Boston area? And it looks like uh, we probably have a pretty good balance there. So if the Boston folks could maybe meet in this corner, my right, your left, in the back after we break up um, and make those arrangements. Uh, and the, the, well, there's another one, Amherst or Northampton area. Are there any people needing rides there? Okay, there's not usually a lot of people. Um, the, oh, yes? One other thing about Boston, I've got a, a van going uh, to Logan. Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. So maybe you guys could just meet real quick afterwards and make sure you have the details straight. Um, yes? You know, what you guys could do is, because I know they give much better discounts the more people that sign up together. Um, so it's possible you'd be able to call the service and change your reservation to add another to it. Um, they only add a few dollars more per extra person, so it's it's really an amazing deal when you get when you start getting more together. Where do you want us to meet up? Oh, I was saying uh, the Boston folks in the back corner on the on my right, your left, um, and then you might find if other people are going to the airport, that might work out. Um, uh, and the last one I usually do is Worcester. Are there any people needing rides to Worcester? We've got one two that need rides to Worcester. Are there anybody that's uh, going to Worcester or through Worcester? I think I'm going to go to Newport on my way to New York. Okay. I don't know if that's en route or if there's anybody going in between. Yeah, Newport, Rhode Island? Yeah, I think I'm going to go there for a night and then yep. to New York City. So, so if anybody wants to do that. That would take you through Worcester. Um, I used to live in Worcester, so I know the area pretty well. So um, would you, do you think you'd be able to drop two people in Worcester? Yep, yep. We're just going to the bus station. And I guess it's just a question of time. Time, yeah. We can call a cab, too. Well, if, if, you think it might, if you think it might work, you guys, if you want to, maybe meet. We've got one last corner, and that's this one. <laughs> and, um, and so is there anybody that's still uh, not sure what they're doing? Oh, in the back. Oh, Bloomfield. So, um, this gentleman here? Okay, so you folks are set. Are we, we all good? Well, that was one of the easier ones. Um, <laughs> so, once again, I thank you for your practice. And, um, oh, yes? We often do that, but because, um, because of the nature of the particular retreat right now, they've asked us to suspend tours while um, Palauk is teaching jhanas there, and it's a, a four-month very intensive retreat, so we won't be doing a forest refuge tour this time. So. Yeah. 
Okay, there's about 20 minutes still till tea, so um, I would say the, the normal schedule would be just walking period this time if you guys want to settle back in and, and try to let all the, the excitement calm down. Um, thank you.
I've heard it said that there's a Chinese curse that goes like this. May you live in interesting times. And when I first heard that, I wondered, now why is that a curse? May you live in interesting times. Because I think we're living in interesting times. And when I look around the world, I see that what makes it feel like interesting times is that there is a tremendous, uh, tremendous forces at play in the world where there's extreme, uh, maybe unusual change and transition happening in the environment, politically, nationally and internationally, economically, spiritually. There's just a tremendous, well, seems like upsurging of, well, unpredictable conditions. We don't really know how it's all going to unfold. And we, as individuals and even as whole societies, civilizations, are being moved about like pawns on a chessboard by these forces which are clearly outside of our immediate control. And how we will be affected individually, in our families, in our communities, we really don't know. We could say that the pleasures and pains, the joys and sorrows, the gain, the loss, the praise and blame, our position in the world is unstable. And inevitably, we're going to have to deal with it. While we all wish to live and continue to live the life of abundance that we have, and to avoid as much unexpected loss as possible. And while we all hope to experience healthy, pain-free body into our aging years, well, and to avoid it altogether and just somehow make the transition without any pain, uh, that doesn't seem statistically likely. even though we know that we can't really avoid pain, loss, being, having to deal with unpleasant conditions, even though we know we can't avoid it, and we've all experienced plenty, we aren't inoculated, we can't insulate ourselves, we can't ensure ourselves to be free of challenging conditions in our life. We can expect trouble ahead. It is naive of us to think that all trouble is behind. So the question that a prudent person would ask is, what contingency plans 
can I make for the inevitable trouble ahead? So here you are, living in northern Japan um, a few months ago, going about your life just as well, we're going about our life, confident in the assurance of our career, our family, our possessions, our society, and the earthquake happens and the tsunami rolls through your life wiping out a lot of the structure that we, each one of us, would have had in place to ensure our happiness. It affected everyone equally. After the surge was over and you looked around, who is it? that you would want to see to help you at that time? What would be the qualities of the person you would most like to meet to help you face that situation? And it's, this is, this is a rhetorical question, but it's a useful exercise to really contemplate what anyone could do with you, for you, because, let's face it, there is a tsunami headed towards us. Each one of us has an unknown, unexpected, unpredictable tsunami of some character headed towards us, and it's going to wash through our life, and it's going to bring the loss, the pain, the vulnerability, the insecurity, the, you know, the fear of the unknown future with it. It could be a relationship tsunami, it could be a financial tsunami, it could be a career tsunami, it could be, well, the forces at least in the world are untamed. So who is it? And what qualities would they, would you want them to have? in a companion to meet this challenge. Well, when I run that scenario through my mind, I would want someone who was really energetic, kind, understanding, patient, generous, wise, creative, fearless, or let's say, courageous, patient, loving, determined in their confidence to survive and flourish. All of these qualities that I just mentioned are what are known in the Buddhist tradition as the forces of purity the paramis, the forces of perfection, if you will. They are the qualities that emerge in a mind that is free of aversion, free of attachment, and free of delusion. You can't buy them. You can't earn a degree in them. 
You can't borrow them. Nobody can give them to you. But each one of us can undertake the training and the practice to develop them in ourself. And to the extent that we do, we are as prepared as you can be for the inevitable tsunami. When we return home tomorrow and to our work and our families and our communities and our social connections and our civic responsibilities, we have every opportunity We have numerous opportunities every day to cultivate these qualities. This is our practice. These are the householders' practices for developing the stability of mind that is balanced in the face of all conditions, the equanimity that we've been taught this week. Is there ever a day go by, let me just ask, where you don't have the opportunity to practice patience? Pretty obvious, isn't it? But we forget. Oh, patience would be a good good option here. Is there ever a day go by when you really, uh, it would be nice to have a ready arsenal of metta or equanimity, kindness, These qualities are the qualities of a good human being anywhere on the face of the earth. Every culture, every religion, every society, every community, and anyone in any relationship recognizes these are the qualities of a good human being. These are the qualities that the Bodhisattva perfected throughout numerous life, hundreds of lifetimes in order to become the Buddha of our day, Gautama Buddha 2,600 years ago. Hundreds of lifetimes taking birth in the most challenging, difficult life situations in order to perfect non-greed, non-aversion, non-confusion, in his heart. So that these qualities of mind became the default setting of his mind. Meaning, they were the first response of the heart in every situation. So you end up in a difficult situation and the first response of the heart is patience, loving kindness, understanding and generosity. Rather than fear, anxiety, taking care of yourself. and So we can see that the opportunity for us to develop these qualities of mind, well, they're just endless. We all have these qualities within us. Or let's say we've all experienced being kind, loving, patient, generous, living with integrity, balanced. These are not remote. 
They're not esoteric. They're not Buddhist. We all have the potential within us to experience them and to further develop them. We can see that we have room for improvement in developing them. It takes knowledge. It takes tools. It takes practice. It takes encouragement to elevate any of these qualities to a place of practice in your life. But once we see, once we give a careful reflection to the trajectory of our life as we know it to be or will be, what better option do we have? While we have these qualities as a potential within us, lying dormant or only accidentally exercised, in order to elevate them to a place of prominence in our life and make them a practice, we have to choose to value them. While we all can recognize someone who's very kind and generous and loving as a nice person, someone you want to be around, someone that you'd like to consider a friend, and that you'd like to be yourself, really, to have those qualities. If we don't consciously make the choice to cultivate them, it doesn't happen automatically. We don't just suddenly, well, become without practice this kind of person. We don't suddenly acquire these skills, and they are skills and knowledge, wisdom of a most intimate and refined degree. So while the paramis are the obvious choice of good behavior, we need to reflect carefully on their value to us in our life, and equally importantly, the impediments to acting on them in our life. And this is practice. To look at our behavior, mental behavior, emotional behavior, physical behavior. For example, when you're walking down the street and you see a homeless person, a beggar, a panhandler, of whatever age and gender and condition, silently or through sign or verbally asking you for support. What goes through your mind that either encourages you joyfully to offer a gift, a donation, or what goes through your mind to cause your heart to turn away and to walk on by and to miss that opportunity to practice generosity. A few years ago, I noticed that when I, you know, just walking down the street, would see such a person, I felt uncomfortable. 
I recognized. I felt uncomfortable. You know, I didn't, I didn't really want to see them. I wanted to ignore them, cross the road, <laughs> pretend they weren't there, had a lot of judgment. You know, why are they like that? Or I felt, you know, impotent. What, what can I do? I mean, look, this is their life. I can't change their life. I can't fix their life. I saw blame into the mind. It just said, you know, society is not taking care of people. Who's at fault here? Blame them. I had all kinds of reasons to not stop, to not offer, to miss the opportunity to free my own mind from confusion, attachment, aversion, just passed it by. The conditioning of our youth and our growing up is so strong, it is so pervasive, we can barely see it. It is normalized to us through our parental, communal, societal conditioning. Not responding with generosity is normal behavior. While that may be suitable, even appropriate, and uh, confirmed by our society, it may not be enough to free your heart from suffering. So, oh, and I saw this through just paying attention to my own experience, and I saw this reaction. I could see that, well, there's some level of contraction in the heart and some shrinking away and some level of suffering. This is suffering to be judgmental and irritated and blaming and, you know, kind of like that. And that person on the street can't do anything about my suffering. Only me. Only I could do anything about it. But what could I do about it? Well, I could clearly acknowledge and address I'm suffering and take the most immediate step to greet that person. And that's what I did. I made it a practice. See a homeless person, beggar, panhandler on the street, go right up to them and greet them as if they were someone that I was happy to see. shaking their hand if it was not a threat in any way, looking them in the eye and asking them, how's it going today? Did you ever ask a homeless person, bigger on the street, do you really want to know how's it going today? The last person I asked, it was in Portland, and rainy day, I was running from the hotel to a restaurant to get breakfast, and Here's this person standing, I, you know, not a young fellow either, you know, my age or more, standing in the rain with this cardboard sign. So I went up to him and I said, how's it going today? He says, a little slow today. Like, what's that mean? <laughs> I'm not sure. But it is the human connection. Actually, you know, and I heard him a dollar or five dollars or something. What we offer in a situation like that, the monetary value or the money, the amount of money we offer is insignificant. But it is the human connection. It is the recognition that they see someone else sees me. Just like this. Someone else cares about me. And actually, the gift we give is love. 
it really doesn't cost anything. And not only do they receive the gift of love, but I, in return, feel happy. My opportunity to make my life happy, not just to make that person happy. How many times a week, a month, do you miss this opportunity to make yourself happy? Yeah, but, I know, there's a lot of buts. There's a lot of reasons we don't. Fear, anger, blame, you know, we got them. But it's your happiness or your suffering. It's our choice. That's why it's a practice. We're not trying to solve the world's problems. We're not trying to fix that person. We're not trying to change that person's life. We're just trying to, in that moment, be a good human being. And when we do, the reward is tremendous to ourselves. If we don't try, though, we won't know. It takes mindfulness to recognize when we're suffering. This, remember the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha? To be investigated and understood. We practice mindfulness as we've been doing here so that when we go out into our life, we are mindful. We're aware of what we're seeing, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing so that we can address suffering and the causes of our suffering. This is it. This is how you do it. This is how you practice outside of an intensive retreat. This is the very practice of householders like ourselves. And generosity is just one of the ten. Can we choose to make generosity a practice in our life? Because to the extent that we practice generosity in our life, we are learning the value of non-attachment. It is a great support when you come on intensive retreat. Non-attachment is... The more you can let go, the smoother it goes. And that's what we're doing. We're cultivating non-attachment. Noticing the habitual reactivity, remembering that there's another way to respond. Rather than being caught in conditioned reactivity, we can choose to practice a more wholesome, skillful response. We can value it, try to manifest it, bring our mindfulness to it, and learn from, you know, when I first started offering to the homeless people on the street, it wasn't always successful. <laughs> you know, I, I made some mistakes, but I learned. I paid attention. I used to ask, how much do you want? That was interesting, but not always satisfying. So I changed my question. But we can learn how to make ourselves happy if we pay careful attention and practice. As I mentioned, though, to undertake these practices is going to require that we confront our cultural personal, community, family conditioning. Because 
our society as a whole, generally, does not value these qualities of heart. Truthfulness, for example. Truthfulness, let me just ask. Anybody here made a commitment to always speak their truth in their life? That's a hard commitment to make. Okay. On the other end of the spectrum, are you a liar? (laughs) It's hard to agree to that one, too. So what are we? Well, we're truthful when it's convenient, and we... (laughs) You know, our society tolerates that. Our families tolerate that. Our workmates tolerate that. They want us to be a little bit, you know, not, not so truthful that it hurts them. That may be fine for comfort. That may be fine for society. But it may not be sufficient for freeing your mind from suffering and the causes of suffering. That's a choice we have to make. Okay. So truthfulness is one of these uh, ten qualities. We live in a society that condones even values deception. And we don't have to look very far. And you don't even have to be very literate to understand and see deception all around us. Advertising, Wall Street, Washington, Hollywood. It's pervasive. And even when we're caught in being untruthful, No shame. Hardly any blame. It's like, so what? Do we recognize the harm and the suffering that causes in ourselves when others do that? Do we know and recognize the harm and pain we cause others when we do that? I tell you, mindfulness practice is really not just about sitting quietly on your cushion and hoping for a good sitting. It's looking at your life, hoping for a good life, and doing what you can to make it a good life by how you choose to respond, as opposed to the comfortable life, or as comfortable as it can be, by reacting with our family cultural conditioning. Huh. Bugger. <laughs> this is going to be more of a more than I thought. That's right. It is. But we shouldn't shy away from making the choice, making the decision to try. To try to personally value, develop, cultivate, practice these qualities. Because to try is to is to win. Because to try means we're willing to confront our conditioning and look and to see where is the suffering, what's the cause of the suffering, and what can be done about it. What can I let go of to overcome that suffering? There'll be plenty of times you walk past down the street and walk past panhandlers. Well, okay. That's okay. There's plenty of times we don't tell the truth. There's plenty of times we don't, you know, we aren't loving and whatnot. It's not a failure. 
It's just a clear, clearly shows us the cause of suffering in our life. And in time, in time we will develop the commitment, the integrity, and the energy to follow through on our aspiration. It's just not possible to, to realize your aspiration just by identifying it. We may have the aspiration to be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Well, that's a noble aspiration. And it's worthy of us to really look into our life and see if that's the direction we want to go. And to acknowledge our current limitations. We're not there yet. We can't even make a solid commitment to do that yet. But that's the direction we'd like to go. Clarify that in your mind so that at least you have, you, you recognize that you have a choice in your life. We are not condemned to live out our conditioning. But it is important to remember, this is the way it is for me, for now. Whatever limitation, whatever aspiration, oh, this is the way it is for me, for now. And within that is contained the possibility of change. We can change. Our aspiration can change. We can clarify our mind. We can improve our commitment. We can follow through with more consistency. We can purify our heart. To look at our life through the lens of such an aspiration is to contemplate not just a little dharma in our life, but a dharma lifestyle, a lifestyle infused with dharma understanding. Dharma meaning the way it is, with understanding the way it is, out there, in here, and how it could be. It doesn't mean that we have to struggle to become a goody-goody. We don't have to struggle to become something that we imagine is the ideal. That, that, is, that spiritual athleticism is not going to work. But moment by moment, opportunity by opportunity, increment by increment, we can turn the ship of our conditioning around to point in the direction of our aspiration. And we can do that in any moment. Any moment we are mindful. We can take stock of where we are, the way it is, and reorient our energy, our intention, and our actions towards our aspiration. That's all. In any single moment, it's just to remember the direction we want to go in life and to take that opportunity as often as we can. So the paramis are really a practice. In fact, they're all practices of the Noble Eightfold Path. They're all practices of mindfulness. We can't practice any of them without being self-aware. 
They're all practices of happiness when perfected or to the degree that we act on them and try to develop them, they bring happiness to the mind. Even though we may not think that being truthful is always going to make us happy or being generous is always going to make us happy or letting go of renunciation is always going to make us happy, it won't or may not until we learn how to practice those qualities of heart correctly. And that's, that's the... That's the task of practice. We practice in order to learn. We learn in order to purify. We purify in order to be happy. As someone said at the end of a retreat like this a while ago, they said, I want to live a life of Dharma. I don't want to live a lifestyle of retreat. I can resonate with that. I wouldn't want to live like a retreat either. But if we only practice the Dharma, if we only practice this awareness on retreat, you know, doing a little Dharma binging every six months, (laughs) it's not going to work. And yet, Dharma practice at home, we have ample opportunity every day without ever setting foot on a setting foot setting butt on a cushion lots of times lots of opportunities lots of instances practicing any of these paramis when the bodhisattva was living out those lives perfecting the paramis Paramis are the forces of purity, the forces of perfection. What makes them such a force in our life? It's when the motivation to practice generosity or the motivation to practice truthfulness is for the benefit, welfare, and liberation from suffering of all beings, not just ourselves. As you will see, and as I've mentioned each evening, the practice we do here, though it seems awfully self-absorbed from inner and outer perspectives, the benefit of this practice (coughs) as experienced in your heart benefits tangibly, noticeably, immediately, impactfully everyone you share life with. And so too when we practice the paramis. Others get the benefit as much as we do. And that's what makes them so, well, so universally recognized, so universally appreciated, so valuable in our communal life. Because everyone benefits. I want to review each of the paramis as a practice of letting go. Because you remember the second noble truth that Annie mentioned the other night, the second noble truth. This dukkha caused by clinging, craving, grasping, attachment. And therefore, the end of dukkha comes from letting go. 
just letting go of whatever it is we can. Well, what is it that we have to let go of? So let's review. In the practice of generosity, what is it that we're letting go of? Well, we're letting go of something, some material good, some finances, some resources, but we're actually letting go of attachment itself and the sense of self that is conditioned by attachment. In practicing living in harmony or morality, the uh, recognizing and appreciating the hiriotapa that Kamala spoke about earlier in the retreat, what is it that we're letting go of? Unconscious harming others by our speech and our action. And when we bring mindfulness into our life, and we see the effect of our speech and action on others, we'll see where the harm is. And we can't help but get the reflection of what causes harm and what behavior would not. Renunciation itself, the third of the paramis, is, well, it's all about letting go, renunciation. Letting go of material things, letting go of behaviors, letting go of habits, letting go of views and opinions, letting go of, well, unwholesome states of mind, letting go of a sense of a limited suffering self. Wisdom, of course, is letting go of delusion, confusion, but in a subtler sense, we can see it's letting go of naivete. We know more than we often acknowledge. We know more. We know what's right. And yet, it's hard to let go of our attachment to self-interested behavior, activity, thoughts views and opinions, thinking that maybe we'll get away with it. Well, as one of the elder teachers here, uh, Ruth Dennison, she says, you don't get away with anything, honey. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't, because it's your heart that knows. (laughs) You may deceive others, but you can't fool your own heart for very long if you're practicing awareness training. Energy, right effort, is of course letting go of laziness, sloth, inertia, letting go of procrastination. (laughs) Darn, you know, I got a to-do list that's pages long, you know, and even though I might work all day to wipe things off the to-do list, there's as many things at the end of the day on it as at the beginning. And one thing I've noticed, now, the amount of fear, anxiety, distraction, etc., that I put myself through to avoid doing those things, or any one of them, is far more than the effort it takes to actually just do it. Did you notice that? Yeah. Why do we do that? Why? This is self-inflicted pain, self-inflicted suffering. Once we see it, we have a choice. Patience, of course, is letting go of impatience, 
demanding others' performance, and letting go of insisting on things being my way. I'm amazed at how quickly my way takes precedence over any other condition in my mind. My timing, my way, my preference. And if it isn't going that way, there's, you know, this predictable feeling of like, <laughs> while the person causing the impatience <laughs> um, can be completely oblivious. I mean, they're just doing their thing. Who can, who can relieve you of the suffering of your impatience? Truthfulness, letting go of. (laughs) Kamala's uh, mother gave her the name Pacencia, meaning patience. I think it's knowing that she was going to be living with me. (laughs) That uh, patience is my uh, my. uh, I was born without a patience gene. (laughs) It feels like that. It's my lifetime practice. It takes a lot. Resolve, resoluteness. How many projects have you started that remain unfinished? More than a few. Why? Lack of resolve. No enduring commitment. Well, this path of awakening, this practice of awakening, this aspiration to awakening, is this another project that we pick up for a retreat, a year or two, and let it wither on the roadside while we happily go in the other direction? Loving kindness, of course, is letting go of aversion, hatred, judgment, impatience. Equanimity. Of course, letting go of reactivity. But in a very practical sense, it's letting go of dramatizing naturally human experiences. You know, we're human. We all experience the full range of human response, reactions, emotions. Why do we need to dramatize it? It's it's human. It's natural. Okay, can we be just in a balanced way accepting and acknowledging of this is the way it is? Or do we have to make a big drama scene out of it? It's normal, it's natural to experience all these human emotions all these human challenges. You're not unique in that sense. So you can see that, you know, when we look at, you know, the paramis, these forces, these qualities of heart to be developed, it really touches us at all of our most sensitive parts. The most sensitive places in our heart is the very place for the development of the paramis. I want to speak a little bit about the par-
army of resolve. Some of you are here with a clear aspiration to make the Dharma available in your life. We see the benefit. We know it's helpful. We know it's useful. We know it's beneficial to us and others. However you envision that, however you articulate it. Now, what is required to fulfill that aspiration? Hurrying? No. Struggling? No. You know, it's said that the, you know the space shuttle that they send up from Florida goes up to the space station, gets there after a couple of days. I've heard it said that the space shuttle is off course 98% of the time. 98% of the time. And yet, it still arrives at its destination. Now, why is that? Well, because of innumerable mid-course corrections. As soon as they recognize it's off course, make a correction, get it back on course. Gets off course, make a correction, back on course. 98% of the time it's off course, but still it arrives at its destination. The same could be said of our spiritual practice. 98% of the time, we may be off course. <laughs> but if we recognize it and make a mid-course correction, not too much damage is done, we don't fall off the edge, we get back on track, briefly. Until we recognize we're off the course again. We can fulfill our Dharma aspiration if we're willing to make innumerable mid-course corrections. It takes mindfulness, though, to recognize when are we off course? When are we trying too hard? When are we trying too little? When have we given up? When have we when are we demanding too much? To be resolved doesn't mean to be grim, tight, (laughs) hunched-shouldered, furrowed-browed, clenched fist. That is not resolve. That's tension. That's holding on to something. Right resolve is really the willingness to recalibrate and to remember to recalibrate as often as you can, and put yourself back on track, heading in the direction of your, in this case, aspiration. When I was in uh, Burma, practicing with Saido Bandita, when I got into practicing loving kindness and the other Brahma Viharas, those practices are the Brahma Viharas, as Kamala no doubt has mentioned, for opening the heart and developing compassion, joy, equanimity. And there are also tranquility practices that can develop extraordinary degrees of concentration called the jhanas. The jhanas are an absorbed state of mind that is just exquisitely tranquil and very secluded from any of the defilements. In the practice of metta or any of the other Brahma Viharas to develop 
jhana, we need to develop strong resolve, aditana. And so as soon as the momentum of metta gets going, then Sayada used to then start me, start us, on the practice of developing this capacity of mind. Now resolve is an interesting capacity of mind. We have the potential for very firm resolve in the mind. It is a capacity, a mental muscle, if you will. But for many of us, it's quite unused. But when you get into jhana practice, or you get into metta practice in this way, it's what we work on specifically to develop. And it essentially involves, well, asking your mind to do something, and then doing your regular practice until it happens. Kind of an unlikely practice. But doing it and trying it, indeed, the mind does develop tremendous resolve to the point where you can ask your mind, tell your mind to do something and give it a very complex you know, program to follow in the course of an hour-long sitting or whatever. And your mind will do it. It will remember. I, I, I remember one time in, in the practice, uh, Sayadaw was training me in resolve and I was doing all kinds of things with the mind to make the mind very flexible, adaptable, responsive to my clear wish, resolve. And one time he told me to try something. He says, oh, next time you sit down, try this. And it was so ridiculous in my mind. I just burst out laughing and said, well, that's just ridiculous. I don't even think it's possible. And he said, you don't have to think it's possible. You don't have to believe it. Just do it. <laughs> As he was so good at conveying. And so just out of whim and with no real expectation, I sat down and I, I, I did my resolve, the formal uh, uh, articulation of the resolve, closed my eyes, instantly the mind did it. <laughs> it was such a shock. I realized, you know, this mind is trainable in a way that we can't intentionally do, but if we have the proper training, if we have the teacher that knows how to train the mind, the mind can be trained to do things you cannot intentionally do. Resolve is one of those qualities of mind. It is uh, in invaluable in our life, not just in sitting practice, not just in metta practice, but think of how many opportunities there are in your life to follow through to completion, to get left along the wayside. How, how many, pro like I said, how many projects have you begun and not finished? Well, lack of resolve. It's not about being grim or, you know, as I said, tight or you know, demanding. It's just about developing this quality of mind, this quality of heart. It's one of the lesser known forces of purity in the mind. You know, we know all about loving kindness and equanimity and generosity, but resolve? Not so, it's not so apparent in the, 
you know, the, the Dharma library, so to speak. And yet, it is an important factor. At this point of the retreat, after the nine, eight days that we've been all practicing, your faith in the Dharma and your faith in yourself to practice the Dharma is at its peak. This is as clean and as pure as it gets at this point. When you look at the value of the Dharma in your life today, What is it that you aspire to in this life? What part could the Dharma play in your life going forward? If you were willing to make a commitment with resolve and all of the mid-course corrections required, When we imagine such a possibility, it's easy to think, well, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. You know, pipe dream, whatever. But hopefully, your clarity of mind will register the direction that you need to head to fulfill this aspiration. And then let resolve be the guide that keeps you on track, that recognizes when you're off course and redirects your efforts back on course. Because there is no one that can prevent you from fulfilling your aspiration. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. These are the four resolves the resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace, the Buddha said. One should not neglect wisdom, one should preserve the truth, one should cultivate generosity, and one should train in peace. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.